Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. So this is Andrea Corso. Did I say that right? Absolutely. And we know each other from CrossFit, and I am most impressed with the schooling that you've just finished for your nursing and your compassion. And I wanted to bring you on to um, talk about that. And it's also really helpful that you're a millennial because we want to talk to young people, um, especially during this time, to you know check in. Tell us, like for for listeners, what's your cultural background? I'm Filipino. Sometimes I'm Filipino-American. I was born in the Philippines. I was there till I was three, so I can speak the language or at least understand my language. When I speak to others in Tagalog in the Filipino language, you if you're speaking to someone who's older, you use a lot of this, I don't know the name of formality. the word, the type of the word. Yeah, but yeah, there's a formality. And I always speak with that formality. I rarely speak to anyone, even though I'm older now and I speak to a lot of younger people, I I always speak with that formality because that's how I learned it. <laughs> so I will continue to do that. Even though sometimes like the things that I say are more, I just sound like a child when I speak the language, but I still like the language. Like my husband watched a couple of Netflix series with me just so I could hear the language again. After being born in the Philippines, I grew up in the Valley. My parents moved here for work. Uh, they're also healthcare workers. My dad was an occupational therapist. My mom was a physical therapist. So they came here as professionals. We are immigrants, but we had the privilege uh, and honor of coming here as healthcare workers. I definitely, something that I got from my parents is, I got a lot from them. I'm so lucky. But they always had this community maybe it's the Filipino side too but very a lot of bring give it back to the community when you share something about yourself let it lift up the next person who and let yourself be an example of I did this you can do it too let me show you how I have I should say my husband and I are both veterans and he we got our first house from his VA loan he has uh, the VA loan allows you to put zero down and I never got in bad credit and I my income is good as a nurse. So we qualified for all the good things and that has really helped. There's We've had few barriers, I should say that, which is really interesting because I'm Filipino. I'm non-majority. Thank you for your service. How was it? We have, just for listeners who don't live in Los Angeles County, has a quite a big Filipino population. But I don't know what that population is in the valley. So what was it like growing up? Were you othered at all or considered a foreigner with an F? (laughs) I would say when I read that question, I was like, you know what, Andrew, you just have to be honest because I felt like I grew up in a very diverse community. And growing up and being out of those like forced or as an adult being out of those for like just out of the classroom, out of a public classroom in like smaller groups where the characteristics of the group may not necessarily be as diverse and as representative of the greater Valley population. I am seeing how class or experience or professionalism or having a degree as an adult, I am finding myself in more groups where I feel other but as a child uh, growing up, I didn't really feel that way. I did feel like my classrooms 
and my neighborhood represented a, the diversity that the valley has, which is I and I've done I recently finished my degree, so I did the research on what the population was when I was growing up and what it's like now. The valley is about forty four percent Hispanic, I think, around somewhere in the forties, around eleven percent Asian. I think only three to four percent black. So yeah, very low. So I will say that I don't have a lot of black friends. So I have been in a position where I might have said, I don't really see race or like we do have diversity, just not necessarily the diversity that includes black citizens. I, I find it hard to relate to other communities because there was such little representation of black people, including the problems, including the strengths. So I have little understanding or little experience of what other people, what, what communities are feeling, what black people are feeling, what other communities are feeling. If the black population is only about 13%, there are going to be communities that are diverse that don't necessarily include Black Americans, and it'd be the same thing in there be communities that don't have Filipino Americans. Right now, you look at the media and it feels like everything is broken. And when Lenya talks about her childhood and I talk about my childhood, we both have diversity in our own childhood that we celebrate where it worked. It might not have been perfect, but it worked, and we're open minded adults. And that it worked for you too is a testament. I, and it's one of the things that I love about Los Angeles is that it is really diverse. And so you grew up with diversity and there was a certain acceptance and, and that's great. In my adulthood, I'd say the first time I realized was probably when I came to this hospital where I'm at right now. I absolutely love it. I should say as a nurse and as a as an employee, all of my views are just my own views. They don't represent the hospital. But I will say my hospital is between the Santa Clarita Valley, between an area of the valley where there's a larger Hispanic population, yet it serves the like the rest of the valley, the North Valley and the Mid Valley. It's located physically at this place where cultures can meet, maybe not necessarily intersect yet. But there are a lot more white nurses at my hospital. There are a lot fewer black nurses at my hospital than at the other five hospitals that I've worked at. Or I should say at least in my department. because Labor and delivery tends to be different as well because it's going to be a lot more women than any other department because it's women's health. Although there are great labor and delivery nurses who are men as well or who identify somewhere else on the gender spectrum. It, it was more of a feeling of, or more of just, seeing that everyone's white except for me. I rarely recognize if I'm code switching. My grandma was a teacher as well, and they teach English in the Philippines in schools. They teach in English. The language was really not a barrier to me, but I will say English is my second language. So anytime someone says, someone throws that in, I like to say it was my second language too, and I am fluent <laughs> um, fluent in, in English now. So it's a big thing at, at the law school, which I think is important to understand what microaggressions are. And this comes up a lot with the Asian community where people will say, where are you from? 
And so, and that's really taken as a microaggression because that's making the assumption that you're not an American. Have you gotten that question and do you feel it that in that way? I have in other groups, maybe not necessarily at work, but I have gotten it. And I, maybe just my experience, I see it as my opportunity to represent, to say who I am, to share who I am, and then just being confident in myself and how what I bring to the table, I know that I can turn this into a positive situation. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's uh, how all of my experiences have contributed to who I am now. I don't take it badly personally, unless of course, it maybe it's just harder for me to remember because I'm an adult and I only want to remember the good things now, or I only want to bring positivity and constructive situations into my life that I don't really, I just let that go. If it's, if it doesn't serve me, easier said than done. Today's a good morning. Nothing's happened yet. So, How does it feel? Because when we asked how you identify, you said Filipino American. And so what about the overarching generality of Asian American? How does, there was just an article in the LA Times recently about how you can possibly capture all the diversity of an entire continent by just <laughs> saying with a pastiche Asian American. But same can be said for African American, right? So yeah. I, I personally would have a problem saying Asian American because, and this is an article that I read a while back about individuality. Actually, no, I read it in White Fragility, the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, how white Americans love their individuality. And it is something that's not afforded to the minorities, Black people or Asian people. We are Black people or Asian people. I can't be, and even in the census, I can't be um, a Hispanic Black American which is what I am. And you, and there's nowhere for you to write Filipino American. There's nowhere for me to write Italian American either. Let's just be clear. So let's actually get clear that we do. I agree that as the oppressing class mm-hmm. that we all love our ind- independence, but I got to tell you, I do find annoyance in those checkmarked. And I often refuse to answer because people will say Hispanic and then people from Spain get to check that. And also people from Latin America and South America get to check that, even though there's completely two different cultures and we're not talking, when we're talking about brown people, we are not talking about Spanish people from Spain. We are traditionally talking about Latin America and South American people. So I find it annoying that the original Latins, the Italians, don't have a place to put themselves. That's the overgeneralization of government documents I do think is going to go away uh, just because it's going to change with gender. And I do think it is changing. It's just the list is starting to get longer. It will appreciate that. But I do take your point that I think that what's interesting is that African-American used to connote slave American, Black American, right? There was a period of time because you didn't know what country you came from in Africa. Now that we're starting to get 
immigrants from Nigeria, from Ghana. I do think people are saying Nigerian American, Ghanaian and American, but I'm still hearing most of the time Asian American. But I do agree, like you get that, you tend to get that comment, right? All like all black people look the same, all Asian people look the same. Those are horrible racist comments that you hear all the time that you don't hear levied against the white majority. Even though I have to say I've sat in class and not be able to tell three blondes apart at all. <laughs> so yeah, what are, what are your feelings, Andrea? No, I really agree with everything that you guys said. It's I really wish that we could represent people's individuality. And there are big differences between the Filipino culture and the Korean culture, for example. My husband is um, half white American or Polish, Amer- Polish from Poland. And that's where my last name is from. And my mother-in-law is from Korea. So he grew up mixed also, and there's really different, a lot of differences um, and a lot of similarities as well. And I think that's why I appreciate uh, my husband, why I get along with him so well. We started off just on a really similar understanding of where each other came from and um, each other's parents. I don't mind that much either, uh, just being a part of, because of Asian I think generally speaking, Asian communities like to make that togetherness. I mean, all communities like to make that togetherness and like to feel included. And if that's the best place for us to be included in a big group, I don't really have anything against that. Plus, there's a lot of influence from Chinese culture to Filipino culture. So yeah, I, I personally don't mind that much. But again, I'm from so many intersections. I don't take that much offense. How did you meet your husband? We met on the internet. Sorry, mom, if you didn't want to hear that out loud. We met on the internet in in 2013. So this was like right before Tinder. I work night shift. And when I go out, I either just want to go out and have a good time with my friends. I don't really actually know how to meet people in public, I guess. And I'm from that generation where easiest for us to express ourselves in writing digital, in digital writing. So yeah, and then my husband on the internet, because he started going to school at Cal State Northridge when he left the army. And so he was newer to the area. He didn't know anyone either. And yeah, we connected when I'm, and I loved him from the moment that I met him. He touched my hand and our like skin temperature was like the same. Do you mind if I ask a personal question? Why did you go for it? Because I wanted to be the same as him. My And my maiden name also sounds Why wouldn't he change his name for you? I think it, I think mainly it was the tradition. That's what I pictured. And as as much as we, I think we are, my husband and I, we're, we are still at that intersection of keeping tradition and trying new things. We're not just full on millennial of doing our own things and not doing what old people tell us to do. <laughs> wait, wait, but wait a minute. Okay, so let me just, play. so my first husband, he changed his name to me, to mine. So we, but when we divorced, he kept Jones and it irritated me. It irritated me. But then when I married Shane, I wanted to have, I wanted all of us to have the same last name, including our dogs, to be family. Because mm-hmm. that's what I'm used to. And so I took Wilson. Never did that before. So. I did not know your first husband took your name. And now I just love you more. I <laughs> love you more, if possible. I got to say, I would never change my name. But I also didn't believe him. I don't believe in marriage. And I do think there's this tremendous entrepreneurial spirit about millennials that I definitely admire. But I find them to be very traditional. 
where it's marriage, it's owning a home in your 30s, it's it's saving money. <laughs> I think it's because of the economy being you don't have the you have grown up in the shitstorm of instability. And so that is more of a value. So I'm not casting, I'm not putting anything on that at all. But, and even so many changing their last name. And I find that stunning as a feminist that women are doing that. And I have to say, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. It is a, it's a, a, I get it for children, but I am deeply uncomfortable with women giving away their identity when the history of giving away your name was a man owned you and could rape you at at any time. And I have to be honest, that's what it was in the 80s. So it was still lawful in some states for husbands to rape their wives in the 90s. So when I think of this and I think about this tradition, I, I personally just struggle with it. I, I like the romanticism of it, like we're sharing the same name, but it is still a woman subjugating to a man. And I can't, it just is. I definitely understand, but I would, what I've picked up is that part of feminism is just doing what's right for you. And not that I completely want to tell you what you said is not right for me. Another part, maybe this is my culture coming through as well. Filipinos like a lot of Spanish cultures, European Spanish cultures, keep their mother's maiden name or keep their maiden name in it too. So my, I have my, it's not hyphenated, but my maiden name is my middle name now. Could I push a little bit and say you should say birth name? Because even oh, the birth. word maiden, maiden. is totally sexist, right? Because yes, my birth name. Implying you were a virgin before you married and it's your maiden name that you gave over to your married name when you became possession of your husband, where it's your birth name that is now your middle name. My birth name. Yes, thank you. My You're birth welcome. name. In the end, I do agree. You do whatever, you, everybody should do what they need to do to make them happy. Lenya has shared so many great articles with me about racism in the healthcare system. And so what's been your experience? You're on the ground in this. Yeah, it's really hard to identify what's what. I will say that as a system with all these different factors in there, it's hard. The system is definitely flawed. It's definitely imperfect. Sorry if that's news, if that's a rude awakening to anyone who already is scared of having poor health and then has to come to us for healthcare. It's flawed. We're just humans being influenced by our society and the problems with society. It's a lot of us don't have practice checking those things at the door before we go and do this job that is so intimate uh, and where we take care of vulnerable people. I think that a lot of women do lose their voice when they come to the hospital to give birth because And from my perspective, from my 10 years in uh, perinatal nursing, I think a lot of women are poorly educated about childbirth and their options when they come in. Or I should say what they have learned doesn't apply to the way that we practice in our facilities, the way hospital births are. They read something on the internet that applies to a birth center, but they didn't realize that the regulations for 
practicing obstetrics in a hospital are different than the regulations for other places that where you can give birth. Like a lot of moms ask for walking epidurals, but not every hospital gives walking epidurals. That's when you get anesthesia in your back to block your pain receptors. You don't want as much medicine so that you would be able to walk, but that becomes a liability because how, from a hospital litigation perspective, how, what if you fall? Right. Lawyers ruin everything. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who's coming in and having birth at the hospital? I think like 98 or 99% of births are still in hospitals, but a lot of moms, definitely uh, home birth or birth center births are most accessible for people who have the finances, financial resources for it. That's for sure. But I am seeing a lot of either younger people who maybe don't, aren't necessarily in the upper class, but they can find the money somewhere to pay for a birth center birth or people in more marginalized groups that are so scared of what they've heard that they would rather pay for, like they make it a priority to pay for a birth in a different setting other than in a hospital. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you my birth story so you can understand. Yeah. So initially, I wanted to have a birthing center birth. I, I was still youngish. I was 25, so I could do this. My I had a, a nurse. No, I don't remember what they're called. I had a doula. I had a nurse. Midwife. Midwife, that's it. My midwife, and I had the same midwife up until um, the day, uh, was like, you perfect candidate. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then like about at the seven month mark, I had a slow leak. And then from that moment, you start going into the risk category. And when you start going into the risk category, then they start pushing you to the hospital. Right. And so, but I was still being monitored. And then between, and then like at that point, my son started also, his birth weight was quite low. Remember that I'm I'm a, I'm only a four foot I'm a four foot nine woman and at that time I was weighing the most I've ever weighed in my life which is like the same amount as what I weigh today but anyway they said that I'm still just really small and and then the push was for the hospital and then it just became this one day where I started going into labor and it was early and so and it was a snowstorm and so I got I had to have an ambulance that took me directly to the hospital. So, but I did not want the hospital. And even in 1993, I knew that if I went to the hospital, I would need to have somebody with me because I was going to need to advocate for whatever I wanted to have the birth that I wanted in the way that I wanted. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, and it was a struggle because they would push for the C-section and I really was like, I don't want to have a C-section because I, at that point in time, thought maybe I'd have more children. And I didn't want to have a C-section. And at no point in time did they ever say that either my son or myself were in danger. If they had said that we were in danger, I would have been like, okay, right for the C-section. But they didn't use those words. So I was like, no. And even, and the doctor kept talking over me and it came to a point where I had to scream, I am not having a C-section unless you tell me I'm going to die. Am I going to die? And he was like, I'm, and then I said, I want a different doctor. I want my midwife. I was just like, I became hysterical. 
And eventually I, um, my midwife finally made it because nobody even freaking called her, but finally she made it and everything went smoothly. And I gave birth to Kaneem in the hospital and they were wonderful to him even after. But it, in 1993, I still knew that there was going to be a struggle. And then when I read the articles about Serena Williams and how she had to strongly advocate for herself and we almost lost her because of this blood clot. It really, it just really then triggered me again. It's like, why are we still, and I don't think it's a black woman thing. I'm sure probably race has something to do with it. I think it's a woman thing. I think as women, we are just not listened to. And then as a black woman, I'm doubly not listened to. And then there's all these misconceptions about how black people don't feel pain. And it's just one of the, it's just so, it's very distressing to me. And that's another reason why I wanted you to come on, because after reading about Serena, I was like, I really want to hear what your views on about women having to advocate for themselves in the middle of their childbirth and how that plays out with everything, race, womanhood, misogyny. I have no idea how Serena Williams, how they almost missed it. I have no idea why anyone would, knowing her history, and I'm sure that's in her chart, they should have been aware of that. Maybe there was, I will say that there are transitions of care. Like when you go from labor, sometimes you have to end up having a C-section. So that's one transition. You might get a different nurse or you might get different people on your team starting to take care of you. And maybe they didn't have the whole picture. Maybe they hear, this is the situation, but they didn't get to talk about every piece of the background. Oh, she has a history of clotting issues or blood clots, full-on blood clots. So maybe that's something that didn't get passed on in the transition. And that is scary. That's the scary part of the way our healthcare system works right now. That happens. I don't know why. Or I, we have policies in place. We're supposed to be following those policies. But this is childbirth. This is humans and on humans. I think we always have to advocate for ourselves always. I think that when a person can advocate for themselves, it shows that they know that that they've, they have some awareness of what their situation is. And that just makes it easier to decide and agree on our plan of care. Because especially in labor and delivery and childbirth, you have to make decisions really quickly. This, it's not a robotic simulated scenario. So I, I really don't know why that happened to her. I know in my experience, sometimes we'll see a high blood pressure and we know hypertensive issues are one of the ways that nursing or healthcare can really minimize maternal morbidity and mortality. Yet we see a high blood pressure and we brush it off or we say, we make excuses. We used to do this even more, but I've heard personally that many times don't make excuses follow up with it. This is one of the ways where we can make the biggest difference. So me personally, you don't have to tell me twice. I will do it. And and I have so many amazing nursing coworkers who are really on it. When I got to this hospital, I was like, hey, they are on it. I need to get enough sleep when I get here. I really had to like carve out space for my professional life because I want to excel as a nurse. I want to be there for my patients. I can't come to work hungover. I haven't done that in a long time. I, I can't even handle hangovers. But I, in my 20s, I, when I was working as a nursing assistant, I could be out partying the night before and then go to work the next day. And, and maybe some nurses don't. We're in a pandemic. Some people are like going through divorces or going through financial issues. And sometimes you just can't check it at the door. Hopefully that's not the nurse 
who gets a really high risk assignment that day. You mentioned something that I wanted to loop back to that people in marginalized communities have heard so many stories that they save up the money to go to a birth center. What are those stories or rumors? Yeah, it seems to be prevalent in patients who come from Hispanic cultures. They say that the epidural gives you back pain. The doctors push you for to have a C-section when you don't want to have a C-section. And that's enough to scare people. Sure. Um, because everything I've been listening to so far definitely just applies generally across the board, not just to mothers having babies, but just the medical establishment right now that everybody needs to bring a patient advocate with them because it's just rushed. It's hard. My mother was ill for 15 years and I have horror stories of nobody talking to one another and me trying to communicate to everybody. And some of that might've been because she was a woman or just older, because certainly we're reading it in the newspaper that there is racism and otherism going on. So have you really seen yes. any of that in action that you've been bothered by in, in your whole history of schooling, intern, anything? It, it, is, it is happening. I think nursing needs to realize that it's happening, own it, work on ourselves, and do better. Take that extra moment to listen to your patients if you feel like they your first impression and your first, your like that implicit thing that comes up or that implicit thing that just happens when you first get put in a situation, you need to take an extra moment to check that. If you find yourself in a scenario where you're taking care of someone who maybe has a history of drug addiction, maybe is poor, maybe doesn't speak English or is black. It's, you need to, to just take that extra moment. We get a lot of patients who are like, I want no pain meds. I want no epidural. And then you say, okay, did you get to take any birth class? Did you, uh, what have you done to prepare yourself? Breathing, what, how do you plan? Sure, we're, sure, we're not going to give you meds if you don't want to, but like, what do you plan to do? Yeah, they have no real plan. And that just, I have not birthed anyone, but I know that it hurts and you can't just leave there. You have to do something. The breathing works. The breathing is great. So if someone does, ha- I feel like if you, are racist or have this implicit bias against certain communities, should you even be going for a job that that a nurse or a doctor or, or, or someone that has to, to deal with the public and not know whether they're going to have that black person or that person who, Hispanic or the person who doesn't speak English or the drug addict or whatever, should they even have those jobs? Like, I feel like police officers and doctors and nurses, these are people where vulnerable people will come into contact with them. And if they already have this implicit bias, that is where these situations happen where someone gets hurt. Should they even have those jobs? But then again, how do you test for that? I I don't know. I I just feel like if you have an implicit bias, you shouldn't be a nurse because that affects your bedside. And I've had nurses who have been wonderful. And I've had nurses who have been very dismissive of me because of whatever reason. Have you in your in work seen someone who doesn't even realize they have this implicit bias and then just goes ahead and, and they perform their duties in this dismissive manner? Unfortunately, yes. And it happened and it happens in all these industries 
like you said, like in law enforcement and in healthcare, and I absolutely hold nursing to the same accountability that I I expect from law enforcement. I, I expect us to therefore use our fiscal resources as accountably as I expect law enforcement to. I, I want to hit those standards. Absolutely. Recently, I was reflecting and my, because I'm, I'm calling people out at work a lot for a lot of different things, definitely about race and about classism and about just being judgy. In California, you get insurance as a pregnant woman. It doesn't matter. You get Medi-Cal. You, it doesn't matter if you're, how much you made. It doesn't matter how many babies you had, whatever and you get the same health care, and you don't have to pay for it. Whereas my coworkers who are nurses and have to pay for insurance and have a high deductible or copay or whatever it is, they have to pay for their care. Yet you come to the same hospital and you get the same nurses and you get the same physicians, et cetera. Some would argue, why should I be working 40, 60, 80 hours a week where someone else gets everything that they need without working. I I wanted to reframe that and say, do you think that there's not enough to go around? Do you think that someone else getting what they need is going to prevent you from getting what you need and want and are able to earn for yourself? There were a lot of voices in that particular discussion. So I didn't get to, someone thought that I just meant to raise the minimum wage and have a universal basic income. I, I don't think we should get into that at work. I think it's really heated and I think it's very distracting. And I also called out some of these same people for talking too much and being really distracted at work. We should just be more focused and we should just do better for ourselves, for each other as a nursing team. And that is a hard discussion for me to have with people during the pandemic, during an election year, during racial reckoning, the reckoning of injustice that a lot of my white coworkers don't, are not ready for. Why aren't they ready? They're ready to face it, but they're not ready to, they can do the work. Everyone can do the work. We can do the work. We can and should be doing the work, but you have to get to a better place before you can come to work and do a better job without, without taking it really personally and without being really struck when someone tells you, Hey, you need to do better. Like I knocked people, I, I, they were shook. They were shook when I turned around and said, Hey, you need to stop doing this, that, and the other. What was the, this, that, and the other? The example that I'm thinking of, we were just having a day where some people's patients were really busy and one person did not have a job to do. So she was not helping. It's not, this discussion was not specifically on being women or race necessarily. I wish I had said more during the, when the topic was about politics. I wish I had said more to say this is not a good place for that. I wish I had said more about that. I will give another example because you because you asked and I really I thought about this earlier. We had a patient, or this can be any scenario. I, I want to make it as anonymous as possible. But there's a patient who's had a lot of pregnancies and has six kids in a two bedroom apartment, and their other primary caregiver is the grandmother. We were saying we were talking about how tough that is and how 
probably no one else in this woman's life has ever told her she was worth anything. No one has ever lifted her up. No one has helped her to be more than a baby factory or someone who has unprotected sex. And then during that discussion, someone said, are they all from the same dad? And I was like, that is irrelevant. I don't see how that's relevant. That's Mm -hmm. great empathy. And I'm glad you spoke up because there are all sorts of assumptions that go into that. Yeah. Is your hospital doing any implicit bias training? I wish we would do more. And I wish it would be more in like a one-on-one setting. I can't remember if it was your podcast or if it was with, it was in Nikki Kendall's Hood Feminism book, but they were talking about how you really need to work with people and you really need to work with people's individual experiences to reframe and to draw out that empathy because yes, you can send people to a cultural competence class. Yes, you can send people PowerPoints and make it mandatory. But if we're not talking about it like we are now, if we're not honoring where we came from and recognizing the different factors that contribute to who we are and how we practice our jobs and how we participate in our communities, we're missing a big part of it and we're possibly missing the actual solution. I agree. So on Lenya's point, how at work, if you were in charge? If you were the Don, (laughs) nursing, Don is like the big job. And is that what you are going for? I'd like to know after you answered Alex's question. Uh, What would happen to not overt racism where there's overt intentional discrimination going on. But now we've reframed the conversation where we are analyzing everything by the impact on the person, right? On the receiving end. And so how would you handle employee situations with the nurses that worked under you or the doctors that worked under you? We've only been talking about nurses, but Doctors are included too here. What would you do with that implicit bias? I would have ongoing implicit bias, like a coffee, like a coffee talk. I proposed that in my capstone project for my master's. I surveyed as many coworkers as I could. And I said, would you benefit from a regular monthly or every other week session where you just talk about these, these specific issues and most I think everyone said yes. Everyone said they would want to talk about these issues. I wish we could say you have too much implicit bias. First of all, you have to test for it. Implicit means that it's not, you don't know that you have, you don't know that you're racist uh, or or you don't know that you have those forms of racism. I don't see why you would want to be a nurse and do as hard of a job for 12 hours as we do (laughs) if you really didn't like people like my husband he was a combat medic but um when he came to the civilian side he's i don't like people enough i can't be in healthcare (laughs) and i it's and it's not that he doesn't like you he actually probably has a bigger heart than me but he just doesn't he doesn't want to do it for work yeah because it's a lot it's this job is you're already there trying to be there for a woman who's lost her child or a woman who's coping with the fact that she needs this section for her health and you're trying to like just empathize with her and be there and say you know I'm honoring your strength I know you're making this decision out of love even though it's not what your plan was and your emotions are just 
you, you need a lot of emotional energy for that. And then you have to switch over to then dealing with someone who you don't want to deal with. My sense is, is that that all of this is so immediate and it's human on human and there's touch involved and it's very intimate. And so the idea is with implicit bias is the remedy is to pause. Mm-hmm. And so while as a teacher, I can work with that because I'm not as intimate with my students as you are with your patients. So I can try to incorporate into my performance or into my teaching persona pauses so I don't step on anything by accident because bias also changes. And so I don't think I have any implicit bias, but of course I do. You you know what I mean? I've had to work out my implicit bias with millennial generation. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like where I finally had a student say to me, you're always making fun of millennials, but you know, Gen X raised millennials. And I was like, oops, you know, like, oh, it's my fault. But it was a really great pushback for me to say, oh my God, Alex, shut up with your own implicit bias. But again, as a nurse dealing in this situation, you don't have the opportunity to pause, which makes it so much harder, I think. For, for a nurse in, in any kind of emergency situation to sit and think about whatever bias is going on. Thankfully, like when you do run into a room and have to make decisions, you're, you can say, you can very easily say things calmly and it, it does help the situation because then you'll, you'll get people to act quickly and it doesn't make tensions higher for an already acute situation. And Thankfully, in nursing, there's so much teamwork. I never run into a room alone. There's always someone else right behind me ready to, while I'm talking to the patient who I already have a relationship with, they're doing the other interventions so that we can act quickly and hopefully fix the situation before it gets worse. So I think that if we build up the people who are willing to learn and who are willing to minimize their bias, I think that will positively impact culture. So I guess that's another way that I could answer Lenya's question and and propose a solution is to really work with the people who get it and really use them as a strength to and as a catalyst to impact our culture positively and impact the environment positively to do better for our patients. Because there are a lot of people who get it. There are a lot of coworkers, even my same coworkers who maybe got a little frustrated and are starting to lean a certain way because the election's coming up. I believe that all of my coworkers deep down just wants to help. It's just barriers that have been created that are blocking us from doing the simple, not bad thing that we (laughs) intended to do. I'm trying not to focus on the fear of the barriers and of the, the systemic injustice that caused these barriers. I am trying to just get really down to the heart level, like you guys say, and just, I'm only going to be here for 12 hours. Can I maximize that? Do I need to fix the healthcare system and the country in my 12 hour shift? Maybe not, (laughs) but I can uh, for 12 hours today, for 12 hours tomorrow, for 12 hours the next day, I can be there for my patients and my coworkers. I wanted to talk about COVID, about how your how it's all COVID has impacted especially maternal health because I know now four women that have given birth during this time. Each has had a different experience though, which I thought was 
unbelievable. I would have thought it would have been across the board, the same sort of thing because of the, the precautions, but it's not mm-hmm. like one person had her husband in the room, another person, their husband couldn't be involved. How does this change hospital to hospital, how you give birth to a child? But we could talk- I think timing changed also. Once we knew more, uh, we, we tried to let as many of the normal things happen as possible. So I think for the most, the biggest change is that there's only one visitor allowed and we try to say, don't go back and forth. A lot of moms, a lot of communities really love that because then you don't have a ton of visitors going at once. That's a huge, that cultural, like the visiting part, that tends, I feel like that impacts nurses a lot too, because we don't, we don't want to be the bad guy. We don't want to interrupt family bonding with our nursing care, but we want to check, we want to make sure too. So it's simplified it for nurses. And I hope that most women can see that there is a benefit also in just that specific bonding time. I have another like beautiful little story where just, I still hear the voices on the video chat when the rest of the family sees the baby for the first time. And everyone is still so filled with love. It still warms my heart, even if it's digital. I can't speak on the, the small grief or that like Oh, I wish you were here in person. I can't speak to that, that women must feel. But I will say just hearing that joy and that love, it's still there. It's still there. It'll be there. You'll get it in 24 to 48 hours when you go home. But um, so sorry, not in the hospital, but you know, we're, your nurses are still here for you. We appreciate you. Yes. Thank oh, you so much for coming. Thank up. you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Need advice? Have a question. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We're happy to address your problems in our podcast, anonymously, of course. Spread the word by sharing us with your friends. And please, as always, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, tune into our conversation with David France, artist and business creative, about being a black man living abroad.